0: Yes, it is. And welcome back Wednesday, November 17th, 2021. Thank you to Mr. Robert Graham for taking the helm yesterday. Bill, thank you for helping out. America, for which it stands. That was the name, uh, the title of our event last night. If you were there and have any feedback or comments, let us know what you thought or took away. Love to uh, hear from you. We hosted Dennis Prager, Charlie Kirk, and Larry Elder. To my mind, the best collection of brains in a single room since Thomas Jefferson dined alone in the White House. That's an old line from John F. Kennedy, a line that probably couldn't be uttered by a president anymore, just as Jefferson cannot be invoked, just as Dennis, Larry, and Charlie and you and I are continually subject to all forms of invective and censorship. But in any event, I was thinking about that title, America for which it stands. That line comes from the Pledge of Allegiance, of course. Interesting history to that pledge. It was originally written to help celebrate Columbus Day. Did you know that? Now, maybe you can understand a little better why Columbus is also on the chopping block and has been for years. Columbia itself, the word based on Columbus, is a synonym for America. But if you get rid of Columbus, you might just as well get rid of the pledge, which was created to help celebrate Columbus Day, as I say. I guess if you eliminate the retail, Columbus Day, you can easily shut down the wholesale. It's animating purpose, celebrating and pledging fealty to the United States of America. The problem comes this way. Some of us still think and truly believe America matters and means something unique. And by us, I mean the whole family of man, if I can borrow a line from Abraham Lincoln. Tens of millions of us and pretty much every person alive in every other country of the world thinks America matters. We have our detractors, to be sure, but they detract because we matter. They aren't focusing their time on fighting places or countries that don't matter. They are not in their way. Who hates Norway, after all? They are not in their way, going out of their way, to condemn and criticize countries that don't matter, places that mean little. Those that know we matter and stand for something good, well, who are they? Find me a continent they don't exist on. If they live in relatively free or totally free countries, they still try to come here. We have more immigrants from India in America than almost any other country, as one example. If they live in unfree countries, which would make affinity for democracy, i.e. America, all the harder, they tell us we matter and mean something unique as well. They march in Hong Kong with American iconography. They march in Tiananmen with American iconography. They march in Tehran with American iconography. Here in America, that iconography is destroyed, burned thrown into rivers, torched. Oh, and, of course, the renamings and the symbols of American Americanism quickly then fall out of favor, where it becomes more patriotic to sit during the national anthem than to stand for it, where it becomes a better idea to have two national anthems rather than one, to cater to people of a certain color of skin. Nobody, of course, ever pauses to ask, to ask what the point of a national anthem is rather than the point of several unless we already are two nations, divided as one black and one white, as if Plessy versus Ferguson and Dred Scott were still the law of the land. How did we get here? How can we turn it around? I like to quote from Ronald Reagan, a quote many of you know, I've always thought we in Arizona owed this sentiment of Reagan's an extra measure of devotion, deference and protection As the first time he said it was in 1961 here in Phoenix, Arizona, he repeated it often and capstoned his presidency in 1989 with yet another full embrace of it. In 1961 was his first iteration where he said, quote, freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected. And hand it on for them to do the same or one day we will spend our sunset years telling our children and children's children what it was once like in the United States where men were free. By the time he was governor of California, six years later, he put it this way in his inaugural address, quote, Perhaps you and I have lived with this miracle too long to be properly appreciative. Freedom is a fragile thing and is never more than one generation away from extinction, it is not ours by inheritance it must be fought for and defended constantly by each generation for it comes only once to a people those who have known freedom and then lost it have never known it again close quote In his farewell address in 1989 he put it thusly quote we've got to do a better job of getting across that america is freedom freedom of speech freedom of religion freedom of enterprise and freedom is special and rare it's fragile it needs protection if we forget what we did, we won't know who we are. A warning of an eradication of the American memory that could result ultimately in a ero- in an erosion of the American spirit Close quote consider his farewell was almost a generation ago. His first warning on this was two generations ago. He was so very much ahead of his time was he not for an answering how do we get here? How did we get here? I would prosecute the case that we did so by ignoring Ronald Reagan. We are all these days rereading George Orwell. Why didn't we take him seriously in high school? Yes, of course, none of us in high school took Orwell's dystopias seriously. We started our day pledging allegiance to the flag. We loved anti-communist movies. We hated communism. Even most Democrats, Or so they said. So we read Orwell at 16 or 17 and thought it all phantasmagorical, perhaps interesting, but not prescriptive or descriptive. Now, if I may, let's go to 1984 and Orwell for a moment. A part we don't quote as often as other parts, but it does say this. Old man Orwell did write this quote. By 2050, earlier probably, all real knowledge of old speak will have disappeared. The whole literature of the past will have been destroyed. Chaucer, Shakespeare, Milton, Byron, they'll exist only in Newspeak versions, not merely changed into something different, but actually changed into something contradictory of what they used to be. Even the literature of the party will change. Even the slogans will change. For how could you have a slogan like freedom is slavery when the concept of freedom has been abolished? The whole climate of thought will be different. In fact, there will be no thought as we understand it now. For orthodoxy means not thinking, not needing to think. Orthodoxy is unconsciousness. Of, co- Close quote. of course, our slogans have changed. And so much else as well. Think, Black Lives Matter has replaced all men are created equal. That's just one of many. One nation under God, indivisible, is an object in our rear view mirror, appearing closer than it is. Columbus Day has a new name. George Washington's and Abraham Lincoln's birthday are now lumped into the same birthdays as Bill Clinton's and Andrew Johnson's and Millard Fillmore's. Schools with the name Jefferson and Lincoln and Douglas being renamed. And of course, Shakespeare is long gone. Never mind Chaucer, Milton and Byron, which sounds more like a law firm than a curriculum in an AP or other English class. Did you know less than 8% of the nation's top universities require English majors to take a course on Shakespeare? Less than 8% literature majors. Less than 8% of literature majors in our top universities require a course in Shakespeare. Now let's never mind high school. Parents and grandparents, you happily, and sometimes not so happily, <laughs> paid and took out loans for your children and grandchildren, to be indoctrinated in this literature of the party this Newspeak. It's a beautiful thing, Orwell writes, quote, the destruction of words. Don't you see that the whole aim of Newspeak is to narrow the range of thought? Close quote. So our college students would come home from spring or Christmas break, quoting weird French philosophers parents and grandparents had never heard of justifying violent revolutions in countries nobody would ever want to visit. And we convinced ourselves, didn't we, that it just didn't matter that much, that our children and grandchildren would be just fine once they entered the workforce or adulthood. Well, college and ideology are strong medicines, and they mattered. The ideology of Marx was opposed by what in our colleges? For once you smash the bottle and Marxist professors smashed a lot of bottles, you can't really put the genie back into it, can you? So we either engaged in preemptive cultural surrender or simply ignored what the kids were telling us. And thus we had a lab leak from the ivory towers, a lab leak that started as a stream and became Niagara Falls a far more toxic lab leak than anything that came out of Wuhan, for this lab leak affected our brains, not just our lungs. Eight million high school and college graduates a year, steeped in socialist thought, at best steeped in socialist language and manipulation, at best steeped in anti-Americanism and blame America First doctrines at best. And we marvel today as to how we cannot achieve the function after we removed the organ. But liberty and justice for all still matters to us and to others around the world. Among the other books I hope we are all rereading are not just those by Orwell, but how about Witness by Whitaker Chambers? If you don't know his story, I urge it on you. If you don't know the book, the same. He speaks of those who left the Communist Party as he was one, writing, quote, It is a fact that a man can join the Communist Party, can be very active in it for years without completely understanding the nature of communism or the political methods that follow inevitably from its vision. One day, such incomplete communists discover that the Communist Party is not what they thought it was. They break with it and turn on it with the range of an honest dupe. A dupe who has given a part of his life to a swindle. Often they forget that it takes two to make a swindle. Others remain communists for years, warmed by the light of its vision, firmly closing their eyes to the crimes and horrors inseparable from its practical politics. One day they have to face the facts. They are appalled at what they have abetted. They spend the rest of their days trying to explain, usually without success, the dark clue to their complicity." Close quote. Isn't that, shouldn't that really be part of our education, high school, college, wherever else, steering children, youth, everyone really, to avoid crimes and horrors and pointing out the dark temptations of their complicity? If it isn't, then our education system from top to bottom is misserving not just America, but the whole family of man we castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. And it's ghastly. I'm Seth Leibson, 6025080960. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Um, where to start, locally or nationally? It's start nationally, and uh, deductively move uh, move locally on this really coincidence uh, of stories. Coincidence of the sen- well, conterminous would be better. Happening at the same time. Coincidence has too many implications of no relationship. These are coterminous where there is a relationship. Let me read uh, a lot of. Let me read you how the New York Times has it. Uh, Excuse me, the New York Post. FBI created threat tag to track alleged harassment of educators, according to Whistleblower. Whistleblowers, that's the thing about them, you know? CNN loved them when Trump was president. But, you know, the phrase whistleblower doesn't attach to party, although it can be made to do so by the media. So we'll see how far this story goes. But the FBI created a threat tag to track allegedly menacing statements made against school boards, And their members after Attorney General Merrick Garland directed the bureau to take the lead on the local disputes, according to a whistleblower. The email dated October 20th was released yesterday by the House Judiciary Committee Republicans who said the letter was proof that federal counterterrorism was being deployed against parents at school board meetings. The email which House Republicans said came from a whistleblower, showed the creation of the tag EDU officials to track these related threats. Quote, we ask that your offices apply the threat tag to investigations and assessments of threats specifically directed against school board administrators, board members, teachers and staff. The email to the Criminal Investigative and Counterterrorism Division says going on. Quote, the purpose of the threat tag is to help scope this threat on a national level and provide an opportunity for comprehensive analysis of the threat picture for effective engagement with law enforcement partners at all levels, close quote. Agents are asked to consider if there's a federal nexus, if there are potential federal violations and what the motivation is. In the letter the joint message was sent by Carlton Peebles sounds like an FBI name, doesn't it Deputy Assistant De- De- director of the FBI on behalf of leadership of the Criminal Investigation Division. it says the agency's divisions share an obligation to ensure all individuals are able to do their job with threats of violence for, from fear of their safety. Now several interesting things should pop up right away making a national issue of what's happening at the school boards you don't get more local really than school board politics people say how about running for dog catcher has anyone ever run for is that has anyone ever, <laughs> ever heard of the office dog catcher it'd be a fun thing maybe we should well it's pretty automated yeah dog catching it's been it's been outsourced or 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 yeah okay <laughs> Wonder where that comes from. We gotta look that up. Or create bumper stickers. Or maybe that could be my next campaign running for dog catcher. In any event, um in any event, uh there is no more local. Is there a position than school board? Is there anything more local than a town hall meeting like you see depicted in Norman Rockwell's freedom of speech or you saw and still see actually, in some cases, in some East Coast towns and hamlets, so they're nationalizing this most local of issues that's that's certainly one issue problem here it's not anywhere close to the um to the worst of it. You know the FBI does have civil divisions the FBI does have <laughs> you'll show yourself out, okay, bill sent me a note. Probably came from Looney Tunes. He was wondering why I wasn't going with it. Well, now I did, and now OK, Bill often will send me a note and then say, I'll show myself out." Um, there are civil divisions at the FBI. This is in the Criminal Investigative decision, uh, Division, Criminal Investigative di- Division, which is a part of the Criminal Investigative and Counterterrorism division. So when the Democrats or Garrett Merrick Garland says we aren't treating parents as domestic terrorists, why the heck, why the heck are there these threat tags at the FBI under the counterterrorism division of the FBI investigating threats against school board officials? I mean, I assume we'll have the FBI now investigating Dairy Board officials in the meetings of the Dairy Board and the pharmaceutical boards and all the other licensure boards that take place in any given state or community. No, that's not even the biggest issue either. It's not the overreach, although that is a big problem and maybe the second biggest problem of it. The problem is it comes with one ideological direction and the politicalization of the FBI – which people used to be stunned when they learned about after Richard Nixon's presidency. They were stunned to learn about it after Richard Nixon. Now they're just depending on it. Now they depend on it. What once stunned has become a political process of dependence by the Democratic Party. I have more to say about that. Bear with Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 34 past the hour. Brings us our dear friend John Dombrowski from Grand Canyon Planning Associates. Grandcanyonplanning.com is his website. He has his own show here, The Word on Wealth, every Saturday morning at 7 a.m. right here on 960 AM. J.D., um, how are you, man? It was good to see you last night.
1: It was fantastic. You did a great job oh, up there, thank as you. always. Well, and you, you really looked good.
0: Looked <laughs> no, you looked better. <laughs> I like this beard you're working. You like it? Yeah, I do. I'd say I rarely would tell someone to keep a beard. I would tell wow. you to. It works very well for you. Wow. Okay. I think so, I think that's the problem with beards. Some people don't have the face for them. It doesn't work for them. I'm one. Right. You do. It works beautifully on you.
1: Well, especially when you don't have any hair in your head. Then oh, you is that have part hair of on it? your Face. It kind of just yeah. When I was standing on my head, you said my hair looked good. Yeah, and it was really my beard.
0: That's right. Yeah. that's the poke <laughs> <laughs> I get um, one question probably more than any other. Yeah. I bet you get one question more than any other. The one I get yeah. is, how do you prepare for your show? The one you get, I'm guessing, I'm guessing, yes. is how much do I need? to retire. Oh, my gosh. Is that the most common question you get?
1: Uh, Yeah, that's a pretty common question. I bet it is. So what do you tell people? Well, I mean, obviously, Seth, everyone is different, right? Everyone has different, uh, I guess, thoughts about retirement. There are those out there maybe who are savers. There are those out there who are spenders. There are those in the middle. Uh, So we have to look at a variety of different aspects of someone's uh, financial life to be able to understand what they would need in retirement, right? So some people still have a mortgage when they retire. Some people still have student loans when they
0: retire. Yeah. Uh,
1: so it really is going to be a matter of what. That's, that's your...
0: actually an interesting point. I'd never contemplated yeah. it, but it's true, isn't it? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. 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 So we have to determine what are your income needs, and we have to kind of back, back our way into uh, how much money would be needed, right? So based on your income needs, is going to help us understand how much will you need. Now, of course, we have to – Look at your savings rate, how much are you saving on a regular basis, uh, how much are you investing, and if you're investing, what type of an internal rate of return would we use uh, to help understand what the growth factor might be over a period of time, and that's not uh, uh, you know, a pill that you take and that you see on television, uh, growth
0: factor. <laughs> For people uh, but, who need beards or hair, right, okay, <laughs> got it, yeah, okay. But... Uh, <laughs>
1: You know so there's a variety of different things we have to look at oftentimes, though, I think people feel they need to have you know as an example, a million dollars, yeah that that would be a great number for people to try to attain, but that's not necessarily. Uh, the
0: case in all instances. It may be too much for some and too little yeah, for others, right? Exactly
1: right. Uh, you know, if you want to and and mean, then there's this interesting
0: yeah. thing about you know the kinds of funds you put people into, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, given the this, this stage of their life, some people will say they needed income rather than reinvestment, right?
1: Sure, exactly. So while you're young and while you're uh, investing and, and taking more risk on, a lot of times maybe the investments that growth companies may not really pay dividends. So you're not reinvesting dividends per se. Because uh, they're more into growth. Right. And but yet, as you start to get to a certain age, maybe we start to look at stocks that pay dividends. And then maybe some of those dividends can be reinvested if you're not needing them as income. At some point in time, we may stop the dividend reinvesting and start to take and draw down those dividends as income. So you're right. There's a, a variety of different areas, You possibly annuities. Money can go into annuities that can pay a fixed amount of income. Uh, That guarantees for the rest of your life, it's almost like setting up your own private pension. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there are a variety of different methods that can be used, but it all depends on, again, the individual uh, and their specific
0: needs. John, um, help me out on something, and this maybe goes to um, property or homes as retirement planning Mm -hmm. and retirement planning investment homes for investment mm-hmm. whether rental or your own <clears throat> i saw an article in the wall street journal fannie mae freddie mac to back home loans of nearly a million bucks uh, not, nothing complicated but when people see names like fannie mae and freddie mac what what are they thinking about what are they looking at what are they being told
1: yeah so um fannie mae freddie mac these were at at one point uh, mortgage companies that were established um way back when yep. uh, i th- just let me check here. It looks like 1938, Oh, wow. Federal National Mortgage Association. Okay. And uh, this was really a, a created as a government, quasi-government agency to be able to back loans for individuals out there coming out of the Depression, I believe it was initially. Mm-hmm. And there have been talk about possibly privatizing these. Uh, but when we think about um, a loan, if you go to a lender... Uh, today, yep. depending on the value of that loan, that loan oftentimes could be guaranteed by the government. Oh. So the lender who's lending you the money feels pretty confident about it because even if you default on that, the government is backing got the Freddies,
0: yeah, or Fannies. Yeah. Right.
1: right. So, uh, but if you're over a certain value on your loan, then it falls out of the. Uh, you know, the eyes of, say, uh, some of the government-backed loans. I so it wouldn't it. be part of that. Okay. So that's, I think, that limit you were talking about. So maybe they're talking about raising yeah. the limit. yeah. Uh, I'm not really an expert in this area. You should talk I, to your I, lender. No,
0: yeah, that's great, though. I just mm-hmm. wanted to get a sense of, of, uh, of you know, people read these things. And I just think sometimes we assume too much, so I just want people to know it. You did a yep. good – Yeah, no, no, it's possible. Per- you per- bet. Perfect. All right. Thank you, John. Thank you, Seth. You great bet. to see you again. You betcha.
1: Securities and Advisory Services offered to Client One Securities LLC, a member of Finn and an investment advisor, Grant King Planning Associates LLC, and Client One mm-hmm. Securities LLC are not affiliated. Thank you
0: so much. J.D., let's not make it so long between in-person visits. Agreed, and
1: maybe we could do lunch. Don't maybe. we? Have a holiday
0: yeah. annual holiday lunch.
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely, that's we what should. I thought. Every month, we're pushing yes. up
0: against it. Okay, bless you, it. sir. We'll do it. Perfect. I'm Seth 508 six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leipsen Show. Uh, there is this uh, story floating around. Kind of interesting. Um, I don't think it'll go anywhere. Myself, I'd love your feedback and input that there is talk at the House of Representatives about procedures to replace Kamala Harris as vice president. I don't think it's going to go anywhere. We can certainly return to it. But delightfully... It is time for our uh, weekly discussion with our Robert Jackson fellow in constitutional studies, Brett Johnson, from the Snell & Wilmer Law Firm. He joins us every week to give us an overview of constitutional contentions and conundrums. Brett, welcome back. How are you, sir?
2: Hey, Seth. Thanks for having me.
0: You betcha. Uh, Brett, uh, something transpired, and I think we weren't able to visit because I was on the road last week. But it took, uh, I guess it was November uh, 12th, that the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit put a stop to the mandate for vaccinations in the p- private employment sphere that you and I have spent the last few weeks talking about. I read the decision a couple of times. I have to tell you, it's one of the clearest, to me at least, clearest decisions I've seen from a federal court in a very long time. I'd love you to. Walk us through your thinking on it.
2: Yes, Seth, and I completely agree with you. In fact, um, if either side of the spectrum, if you want to read a very well-written opinion, as well as to understand constitutional law and statutory uh, infringement, whatever you want to call it, this is this is an opinion people should Google and read. It's, it's not overly complicated. No, it It's isn't. written no. very simply, and it's written very, very well and addresses a lot of very important principles uh, quite honestly for the republic so the fifth circuit and, and just for background um, when OSHA issues one of its mandates which are going to call the emergency treatment standards you don't have to go to district court you don't have to have that one judge and, and you know sitting up there in the robes and evaluating everything you go straight to the circuit courts and that happened in multiple states well over 20 different states um, you know brought actions in their so the Fifth Circuit was the first to act, okay, mm-hmm. and it immediately issued its day, pending review, and then on the on November twelfth came out with its determination, it, it, and and it just was, it was like clockwork. I mean, it, it first raised some constitutional issues, and then uh, obviously raised them at the end, and I'll get to those, but it just walked through the statutory authority of OSHA, and just basically said this this mandate does not meet what OSHA is meant to do, and they, they had no compelling argument that um, that this was uh, widely present in society, you know, non-life-threatening to most employees because of people who have already um, gotten vaccinated, and, and it also didn't uh, have specifics between different industries. Um, also, uh, one last little issue is that they didn't make no distinction between why they were picking companies that had more than 100 employees, and yet if you had 99 employees and below, um, that that, uh, that was some sort of factor, so that it was basically an arbitrary and capricious touch standard. And most importantly from OSHA is that OSHA had previously stated that uh, a, a vaccine mandate was not necessary, and then obviously new administration, and they changed their mind, and it was well-reasoned back then. So, uh, and one last point is, is emergency means emergency. Yeah. And if President Biden thought it was an emergency, OSHA needed to do it two months ago and put this mandate out there rather than waiting the two months and then also wait another two months for implementation. So we're kind of outside. Yeah, I I thought that was actually.
0: Yeah, no, thank you for that analysis. Brett. that's that's really good. And and I and I and I would encourage people when they do read it to read the footnotes um, because they they are fantastic. That one, there's a footnote on the point you were just making that I thought was was classic. Um, Can I do it with you? The president announced his intention to impose a national vaccine mandate on September 9th. OSHA issued the mandate nearly two months later on November 5th, and the mandate itself prominently features yet another two-month delay. One could query how an emergency could prompt such a deliberate response. In other words, this whole mandate business has consumed, what, 25% of our entire COVID experience without implementation yet? Hard to call that an emergency, oh, right?
2: That, that that That's exactly right. And, and I think also just from... You know, a federalism-type concept. You know, the federal government is not supposed to be doing what the states are doing, which is, you know, states have police power. The federal government does not. So when the federal—I love this language—when the, fed, the federal government acts, it's supposed to act as a scalpel according to its parameters. Right. And what the Fifth Circuit said here is is that OSHA and President Biden were acting as a sledgehammer on basically destroying the economy of multiple industries throughout America. And I, and I thought that was that was really telling when they when they used that type of language, because that that shows overreach um, for a lot of different issues in, in the federal sphere. But they really, really um, articulated it well here.
0: Uh, yes, uh, they certainly did. I, I also I was going over with the audience the other day. Uh, your, I'd love your take. I think I said I would I, would, I wanted your take on it. Um, To the audience, which was this issue of over and overbroad or over inclusive and under inclusive underbroad. I thought that discussion was extremely clear and helpful as well, because a statute can fall on either one. This has both right. A statute or an order. Right. That's
2: that's right. And and in, in theory those are supposed to be contradictory terms you you're, you're, you're yeah. never supposed to be able to do both at <laughs> yeah, once.
0: Right.
2: and uh, and and OSHA remarkably was able to do both yeah. and and the way that they articulated that was just um was was just remarkable by by uh, lending into that as well as you know our our legislature our congress and in the states we have the legislatures but congress is supposed to be passing these, and they and what what the court also said it in, in more of a dicta towards the end on the constitutional side is, is that Congress cannot delegate its power. Right. This is
0: the old its non-delegation com-
2: doctrine, right? Right. Which was back in the 30s. You know, it hasn't gotten a lot of traction. Right. It was tried to be used against state governments recently on, on the um, right when COVID came out, didn't really get a lot of traction. But in being used against the federal government, um, it, it makes a lot of sense because it, the legislature cannot give basically carte blanche to some bureaucrat uh, who might be, be in D.C., might not be in D.C., and then to impact all health policy, which was not what OSHA was meant to do, health policy for the entire United States. So it's it's it, it, this is going to have ramifications, not just on the vaccine mandate, but in regard to a host of other overreach activities by the federal government.
0: And I don't know if you agree with me on this. I was telling the audience as well, if they don't have time to read the 20-page opinion, though it's very clear, just read the concurrence. Uh, It's about a page, and uh, its last sentence, i think or last two sentences, I think, are also praiseworthy. Whether Congress could enact such a sweeping mandate under its commerce power would pose a hard question. Whether OSHA can do so does not. I love that kind of clarity. I love that.
2: I do. I do too. I do too. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, um, when we talk about this, also here in Arizona, yeah, um, one of the federal court judges uh, did not go with what the attorney general wanted um, in regard to government contractors. Right. So, um, government contractors—they're still—they're rolling out the what we call the federal acquisition regulation clause to to require fe- um, federal government contractors. To uh, to be vaccinated, but you know, it, it, I always thought uh, that was going to be a out. different
0: constitutional analysis. I always kind of thought it is. would
2: be. Yeah. It, yeah, it is, and and, and that the, the judge in that case, uh, Judge Liberty. He basically said is that if you take the government's money and yep. decide to basically get in bed with the government, yep. you're going to have to yep. um, live up to their their, their requirements. Oh, my so, gosh. You've uh, served on enough nonprofit
0: yeah. boards to know that, too, having
2: – not you? Right. <laughs> yeah, That's right. Right, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, I would love to do more in depth on all of this. I have a feeling we're not going to have any shortage of constitutional – maybe we could look at some of this stuff on the school boards next week a little bit. Would that be Would that be interesting to folks? I think it would be uh, if, if you would Absolutely. be interested. Let's Let's talk about um, the constitutionality of the federal government. And it looks like we have a new story on a whistleblower at the Department of Justice and the FBI on monitoring and uh, policing school board activity. Could we do a little federalism in that next – in our next installment, uh, Dr. Johnson?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Looking forward to it.
0: Brett Johnson from Snell & Wilmer, our Robert Jackson Scholar in Constitutional Studies. Yes, sir. Thank you, Brett.
2: Thank you, Seth.
0: Bless you. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson show was talking about the FBI and um, this whistleblower that's uh, pointing out that the uh, counterterrorism division at the uh, Federal Bureau of Investigation at the Department of Justice under Merrick Garland under Joe Biden is creating files on school board parents here in Scottsdale. We have this uh, in the sharpest relief possible. And uh, Cherise Sapir will be on our show tomorrow to talk about what's going on in Scottsdale. Perfectly happy to hear from any parents or anyone else on this in the meantime. But Lori Roberts in the Arizona Republic today, uh, someone I um, I don't quote very often. I think it'd be fair that she would call herself a liberal columnist. And I think liberal is fair, by the way, not left, but liberal. Uh, I've, um, I th- I've always found uh, not... Only Laura to be liberal, but a fair liberal. In any, any event, uh, in any event, though we disagree on much, uh, as you know, uh, occasionally uh, liberalism uh, finds its its origins and roots and, and, and speaks truth to power. She's doing so in her column today. And um, I would encourage you to read it. What I want to talk about later in the show is one of the parents – On the other side of our position, I suppose, if it would be fair to say so, one of the parents she quotes, you know what they say? One of these parents talking about other parents who are opposing the school board on critical race theory. This one parent says they we they prefer their history whitewashed and their kids in gender assigned at birth bathrooms. Holy smokes. We want our boys to go to boys rooms and girls to go go to girls rooms for the bathrooms, for restrooms. Holy smokes. We really are cave people, aren't we? Oh, that's so stupid. We are cavemen, aren't we? I'm not doing cave people. See? It gets to you. It gets to you. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back.